John chapter 8. We'll be in verses uh, 12 through 20 this morning. Uh, this was a, a very suitable sort of ending point for Advent, and we're actually going to develop the theme that we start with today uh, of Jesus as the light of the world. And so our Advent series will be on uh, the coming, the light has come, I think is what I entitled it. And so we'll look at some of the things from Isaiah and some of the other prophets as well as wrapping up in uh, Revelation 21, uh, which Jerry read for us this morning. Um, as I was planning out the beginning part of next year, um, yeah, I think ahead sometimes, not all the time, but uh, we're going to, sometimes, yeah, we're going to um, basically be at the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in time for Resurrection Sunday. So it all works. God's at work. It's great. Amen. All right. Beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, for the word of God that you have given us, that we might know who you are and what you have done for us. But Father, we confess that apart from your grace, we are blind. Our understanding is darkened. Our thinking is futile. But you have not left us to your, our own devices, to our own thinking, because you have sent the Son to exegete you, to reveal and interpret you, so that we may come to know you, trust you, and love you. So we ask this morning that you would work by the Spirit to help us to see the greatness of their Son, and therefore your greatness more clearly in the Scriptures. Amen. While Bill Nye was living with us, he did a trip, and he had to prepare for this trip. His trip was a hiking trip. Uh, he and some of his friends had decided to hike from rim to rim and back again at the Grand Canyon. I don't understand, but the youthfulness of men excited about all of this sort of thing, and they were going to do it overnight, which for me adds the level of uh, why would I want to do this factor, okay? In the middle of the night, they're going to, well, they're not going to start in the middle of the night, but they're going to, overnight they're going to walk this, uh, going up those trails. I'm just looking down at them going, I can't do this. 
Anyway, so of course, in order to do this, in order to successfully survive this, uh, this journey that they're going to take uh, by themselves, they needed a few things. Among them, they needed food, because I can't imagine all of that hiking without getting really hungry and needing to replenish, so you have the energy to do this. They need water. Of course, it's still Arizona, it's still dry, and you're exerting a lot of energy. So they're going to need lots of water. So Bill, of course, you know, had <clears throat> you know, his uh, hands-free hydration system that uh, Amy and I would sometimes kid him about. Um, so he, he had that ready to go. And then, because it's at night, needed light. Now, a flashlight doesn't really do because you will need your hands at some point. And so Bill had one of those little headlamps that you have, which uh, we discovered works really good when you have to clean up the backyard at night. You know, you stick that little thing on him. So it's really good to help him see where he's going. And as I think about Bill and his journey through the Grand Canyon, I'm reminded of the Israelites and their journey from Egypt to Canaan. They needed those, very, those three same things. They needed food because they were traveling through the desert and food was not always readily available. They needed water, once again, traveling through the desert not always readily available. And because sometimes they traveled at night, they would need light. That light was there not just to help them to see, but also to know where to go. That pillar of cloud and fire would lead them during the day as well, because being people who had been enslaved for generations, they weren't used to the journey from Egypt to Canaan. They didn't know the trade routes. In fact, God brought them along a strange way. But that's a different story for a different day. But water, food, light. And that really brings us back to this text where we see that Jesus is the light of the world who guides us home. Let's sort of explore this this morning. First, starting with the idea that Jesus is the light the world needs. Jesus begins to teach again. He's gone through the the controversy, so to speak. This is at the end, or just after the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, of course, we talked last week about how the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery, so there was a lot of controversy there. But we know when Jesus is around, and sinners are around as well, that there's no end to the controversy. So we'll see more today. Jesus here proclaims, after the Pharisees and the woman have left, I am the light of the world. This is the second of his I am statements in John's gospel. And all of these statements reveal the fact of his divinity because they're all tied in to Old Testament revelations about who God is. He's invoking the reality, the fact that he is the eternal son who has taken on flesh and blood sent from the Father to come to save sinners. He's invoking this reality, and this is one way in which he's doing this. We see this reflected as we recited the Nicene Creed this morning, that he is God of God, light of light. Very God of very God. Jesus uses in the Greek the first person uh, personal pronoun, I. It's not, it's not necessary in Greek to use the personal pronoun next to the verb, because the verb... Conjugation reveals its first person singular. Emphasis. 
I am. He's invoking, as many scholars believe, the formulation from Exodus when Moses was at the bush and it was burning and God sends him back into Egypt to bring his people out. Who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. For I am who I am. And so Jesus is invoking the I am statement and also statements about who God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. Light. God is light. Psalm 27 starts off with, The Lord is my light and my salvation. The reason he is my light, according to the psalmist, would be that he is, in fact, the light, capital L, light, from which all other light derives its significance in luminosity. John picks up on this idea in his own letter, his first letter, chapter 1. This is the message you have heard from, we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. So what does it mean that God is light? Well, John develops that as well in his uh, letter there. Metaphorically, this points to the reality that God is absolute truth. Okay, one of the things we talk about when we talk about darkness is ignorance and deceit. God has no part of ignorance or deceit. When he speaks, it is absolutely true. All truth is, in a sense, grounded in him because he is the capital T truth, not just an expression of truth. This light also points to the fact that God is good, that all goodness is a reflection of his goodness, that God is absolute in his righteousness as well. And that all righteousness that we might express is merely a pale reflection of his true, eternal righteousness. He is the source of all of these things. He is the light. And now the truth is that people, most people, don't know really what truth, what goodness, and what righteousness are. Now, they won't say that. But when you start to drill deeper into what their, their ideas of truth and goodness and righteousness are, you discover that most of the time they're sort of grasping in the darkness. I'm reminded of a trip I took into Boston when I was uh, working at Montgomery Wards. You know, here I am at that point, late teens. One of my coworkers was married, and she was going to drop her husband off at Logan Airport, and she didn't want to drive through Boston alone. So she asked if I would be willing to go along. So here I am. I hadn't really driven through Boston much at that point in my life, but here I am. For I'm along for the ride. We drop him off at Logan Airport, and it's then that the fun really begins, because we seem to be going in circles, and those circles always seem to include the combat zone in Chinatown. We were, we were grasping in the dark. I mean, it was daylight, but we were grasping and trying how to, how to get out of Boston. And if you've ever driven in Boston, you'll, you'll remember 
there are one-way streets all over the place, so you kind of get, you can easily get stuck in these loops of just going in circles, and that's what we did. And that's really what our culture does. It gets lost going in circles, thinking it understands things when it really doesn't. Why is it, where does this darkness come from? We see from Romans 1. It starts, verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, and so this is the result, what happens because they didn't honor God, they became futile in their thinking. So the first thing that happens is that their, their thinking was not productive. It went around in circles. It was pointless. It didn't accomplish its ends. So their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this talks about not just the thought process, but also the desires of the heart became darkened. They began to want the wrong things. Picks up again. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so we see from Romans 1, the the ignorance and the broken thinking and logic of humanity in sin. This is not the only place. Ephesians 1 uh, talks about this as well. That shouldn't be Ephesians 1. That should be Ephesians 4. I goofed. They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And so we see that the hardness of their heart, their unwillingness to receive instruction from God, led to ignorance. And so they went blindly about doing what they wanted to do. And so one of the the hard things that you see in a culture sometimes, um, you'll hear people say things like, just follow your heart. Don't ever do that. Because your heart has sin in it. Your heart is darkened. And so apart from Christ, your, your heart wants the wrong things. And if you follow your heart, you'll go in the wrong directions and you'll make a mess out of your life. Twice in Proverbs, it says, in 14 and 16, yes, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it only ends in death. These people who are on their way to tragic destruction are going in a way that seems right to them. It seems good to them. It seems productive to them. It seems like it will make, it will fulfill all of their really good desires. And it leads them to destruction and despair. We have to understand this. That people's thinking is futile and foolish. We see this all the time in politics. Oh my goodness, we see it all the time. Doesn't matter who's in control, okay? But there's these really great ideas about how to fix things that only create more problems that need to be fixed. That's merely a reflection of the fallenness of the human heart in the mind. That's all it is. Just on a larger scale. But what we see here because Jesus is the one who has been sent by the Father, we see that he was sent to impart truth, to impart goodness, to impart righteousness where there were none. 
And he does this, as we've seen before, particularly in Colossians, through our union with him, through faith in him. And so because we're joined to him, we receive the truth, the goodness, and the righteousness that he has. They're given to us as gifts. And so, as we think about Jesus for a second, do you think anyone who looked at him at that moment as he declares, I am the light of the world, said, well, that's obvious. I can see the glow that emanates from you. No, they didn't see that. It wasn't like Moses' face after being face-to-face with God where he had to put uh, the veil over it because the glory was diminishing from his face. It wasn't obvious to them when he said this because it wasn't like some religious art. You know, you have the halos and the glows coming off people and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't like that. His glory was veiled. I love what Augustine says. Do not scorn the cloud of the flesh. The light is clouded, not so as to hide it, but to make it tolerable. We, as Moses was told, cannot gaze upon the glory of God and live precisely because we are sinners. And so the glory of God, the light that is Jesus Christ, is is clouded and is veiled in his humanity so it won't destroy us. So don't think, oh, it's not blatantly obvious. But think, it's good. It's not blatantly obvious, for it would destroy me. Jesus is also the God we need to teach us how to think how to, what to believe, even. I recently finished reading the uh, Hunger Games trilogy, and uh, hopefully this won't be a plot spoiler for anybody as they uh, prepare to go to the new movie. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, don't worry. Get the big point. Don't get lost in details. There's one character who was captured by the government, okay? PETA. And while PETA was in the, the hands of the government, what they did is they brainwashed him. They gave him this nasty drug so that it, it attached all of the memories that he had that were good memories and filled him with fear so that he completely reversed how he felt about people and how he felt about things. And so he loved the woman Katniss. But because of the brainwashing, he now feared her and hated her. He wanted to destroy her instead of protect her and take care of her. And so they, not knowing what has happened to him, they rescue him and then discover when he tries to kill her that something has happened and then they finally figure it out. Eventually he realizes something has happened to him. That this woman is not exactly what he thinks she is and they develop a game. Now he hasn't twist, turn the corner yet. Real, not real. And so he will ask her about the memories. Is this a real memory or is this something that has been twisted in my head by the drugs that they filled me with? We need to play real, not real with Jesus. Jesus, am I seeing this the right way or am I seeing this the wrong way? Has my sin twisted things in me so that I don't see reality as it is? 
Or is this one of those moments where I'm thinking clearly because of your grace? That's why Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 are there. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Not me. Reality check. Real. Not real. The darkness that we all have to live around, live through and all that we see everywhere and that we have experienced, this darkness that we see in John's gospel is a symbol of sin and condemnation, while light is a symbol of salvation. We see it all the time in hymnology. I saw the light is one old song that Jimmy Cash covered. John, Jimmy, Johnny. He had a brother, right? <laughs> Sorry, I just went back on my medication. It's all going to work eventually. Okay. So, he is the light of the world. He's not the light just for the Jews. He is the light that extends to the Gentiles. We'll explore that when we get to, I think, uh, Isaiah 40. Um, But, again, this, this idea that John keeps putting forward, that Jesus' mission, while and immediately to the Jews, is not exclusively to the Jews, but he's going to bring the Gentiles to be part of the true Israel. So, like the sun that shines on everyone, Jesus is the light of the world, the only light the world has. So, people who naturally dwell in darkness need Christ to shine on them and save them. Second part of this I want us to ponder this morning. The light leads people to life. That sounds a little redundant, but hang with me for a moment, okay? Remember, he's spoken this either at the end of or just after the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles has that wilderness motif. It's reminding people of God's provision to the people of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. You know, when it takes 40 years, you've gone past journey into wanderings. That's just the way it is. Okay? So it's about how God had provided for them. And while it doesn't talk about food, we know that earlier in John's gospel, there was that rather long section that seemed like probably my preaching on it would never end, right? On Jesus as the bread from heaven. And thinking about how Moses provided the manna, Jesus is the true bread from heaven. So there's the food. And in chapter 7, we talked how Jesus talked about at the height of this festival, you know, when the, in, in light of the water-pouring ceremony, the reality that he is the one who gives fountains of water, springs of water that lead to life. The water. Like the water from the rock. Well, here we have the light. The light that is necessary. Because, of course, they were led by the pillar of cloud and fire. Exodus 13 And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So they didn't need Bill's little, you know, headlamp, okay? Because they had the Lord. Now notice what it said. The Lord wasn't the pillar, but the Lord was in the pillar. And so... During the day, they could see, in a sense, the glory cloud. And that's really what's going on here. The, during the day, you, you don't notice the fire that's burning in the glory cloud. 
the fire of God's holiness and glory. But during the nighttime, when, when the sun has gone down, now this pillar of cloud flames as his glory is more obvious to them. And it is by this light that he leads his people where they need to go overnight. In light of this, during the Feast of Tabernacles, besides the water-pouring ceremony, there was a light ceremony. There were these four huge lamps that were in uh, the court of the women. Not sure why they were in the court of the women, but that's where they were. And they would light these things at night. And they were big enough that the light would shine, as you know, city on a hill kind of shine, and give light everywhere. It, was, it would be a beautiful thing, reminding them of how God was their light. So, while this goes on, the orchestra from the Levites is playing beautiful music and leading people in praise and worship. Uh, this, of course, I think would be one of those instances where there's no sacrifices taking place and music is being played. Um, so, um, the argument of our brothers and sisters who think that musical instruments are part of the sacrificial system and therefore no longer valid, that argument really isn't valid. Okay, Sorry for that little side trip down somewhere else. Okay, If that's not a thing for you, don't worry about it. All right. So, these huge lamps that are burning allude to God's provision of light and direction through the pillar of cloud and fire. At the end of this passage, where is Jesus? It says Jesus is in the treasury when he's speaking. Where's the treasury? We know from when Jesus was observing, and he's pointed out to his disciples, the rich guy who put in a lot of money and the widow who put in her might, and he mentioned that she put in far more than that guy guy did. Women also had access to the treasury. The treasury was in the court of women. It was one of the places the women could go. And in the court of women, uh, you had these 13 boxes in the shape of shofars. Those of you who don't know what a shofar is, it's a ram's horn. Okay? And they would use those, you know, to, as horns. They'd cut off the end of it and blow through it. Well, they used these uh, boxes, they shaped in, in shofars, and they had 13 of them, and each of them was labeled so you'd know what you were giving to. You know, I'm not sure what the labels were. No one tells me what the labels are. You know, maybe widows, maybe orphans, maybe destitute Levites. We're not sure. But there were 13 different things you could give to, uh, sort of like giving to the building fund or something like that. Okay? So this is where Jesus is preaching this, in the very place where they would light those lamps. And he says, I and the light of the world. But he continues, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now, there's an implication there. That those who don't follow him still walk in darkness. Okay, It's only those who do follow him that don't walk in the darkness. They walk in the light. This points to the fact that not everybody benefits, despite the fact that the light shines bright. 
Think of a man who was born blind or was blind by accident. The light shines just as brightly around him, but he does not receive the benefit of the light because his eyes don't work. The light's still there, but he walks in darkness. And so the person who, who does follow Jesus, it's like the eyes are working, and you see because of the light, because of Christ. But for those who don't follow him, it's as if their eyes are closed and do not work. And so even though there's plenty of light, they walk in darkness, in the hardness of their heart, in the futility of their thinking. People must follow the light. Jesus is declaring that he is the fulfillment of the pillar of cloud and fire. He is the one that it pointed to. Remember, the people in the wilderness, they needed manna, they needed water, they needed direction. And what we see from John's gospel is that he is all three. Many are his blessings. Great is he. John wants us to see how dependent we are upon him and how glorious he is in these statements. Why do we need to remember this? 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sojourners and exiles are, are people who aren't where they used to be and people who want to go somewhere else. They're, in a sense, on pilgrimage. They're in a, they see themselves typically as being in a wilderness from point A to point B. We see this wilderness motif in, in the letter to the Hebrews. And so what it is is, a, is a, a way that the New Testament understands the life of the church. We are to think of ourselves as people who have been set free from slavery but have not arrived at the promised land yet. The wilderness motif is for us as Christians to remember that though we are loved by God, though we have been redeemed by God, we don't have everything that he has promised us yet. We have a lot. We have, so to speak, the manna from heaven. We have the water from the rock. We have the pillar of cloud and fire. But we haven't gotten there yet. We're not in Canaan. So, we still need this, these things that Jesus provides. We are utterly dependent upon him in the here and the now. And so we, we live in the wilderness, brothers and sisters, and therefore we need the heavenly bread, we need the water that he provides in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we need his light. Those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John's pulling on those themes from the first chapter of this gospel that we saw. In him was the light, and that light was the life of men. Okay, He is our salvation. He is the one who leads us through the darkness. What the pillar of cloud and fire was to the Israelites, he is to us. But we move not to Sinai. We move not to the promised land. We move somewhere else. 
But while we move, we need wisdom, we need guidance. For instance, Psalm 119, verse 100 and... That's too... Yeah, five. That's too tiny for me to see. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so the Israelites would recognize that the law functioned to light their path, to show them morally which way to go, what righteousness was and what righteousness was not, or what unrighteousness was. And so to live rightly in God's presence, they recognized they needed the law to do this. The law lit their path. If we connect the dots between that and this passage, we see that Christ, who is the living Word of God, He is the one who guides us morally and the one who grants us wisdom. Part of what he does as we journey, as we travel on this pilgrimage, is he sheds the light on the way we should go, what righteousness is and isn't. But let's get back. I said we weren't going to the promised land. We're going somewhere else. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he's going to the celestial city, uh, which is merely the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. So we're going to the promised new Jerusalem, the new and improved perfect Jerusalem. Okay? He's the one who's going to bring us safely from where we are to that new Jerusalem. We heard about that in Zechariah 14. We also read about it in Isaiah 60, this notion, the sun shall uh, shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. That's picked up on in the reading that we did from Revelation 21 as well. It finds fulfillment there. So we're longing for the day in which the only light we see is the glory of God. But right now, we see by the light of His Word and the power and the illumination of the Spirit. That's how we walk. That's how we see. That's how we keep moving. That is what he uses to do this. Because, of course, his glory is still veiled at this time, so the world does not see it. Again from Augustine. Let us love that light. Let us be eager to understand it. Let us thirst for it, so that by its lead we may one day come to it and live in it so as never to die again. Not just being in the light, but partaking of life. That's what's going on here. And so Jesus leads us to the place of life, although he is the one who grants it, the new Jerusalem, where the Lord will be the only source of light. There'll be no more LED bulbs hanging over my head. Okay. 
So as pilgrims and strangers, we need Jesus to lead us to the promised New Jerusalem. Thirdly, lastly, shortly, or briefly, those in darkness reject the testimony of the light. The Pharisees don't receive what Jesus says. They don't argue with him about what he says directly. What they do question is his ability to testify about what he says. See? They're saying that his testimony, and that it's, it's hard because it's, it is translated true, is not true. The idea there is more valid. The testimony of a man about himself was not considered to be valid. There needed to be external testimony about something, someone. Okay, so that's what they're getting at. And they're sort of uh, playing, perhaps, on what he had talked about in, in chapter 5, where Jesus said, I don't testify myself, but the, but the Father testifies in my behalf. So, you know, maybe they're remembering that. Maybe they're not. But that's what they claim. You can't testify about yourself. That's not valid, is basically what they are saying. Jesus challenges their ability to assess his testimony. After all, they're not following him. They're walking in darkness. They're ignorant. R.C. Sproul notes that the spirit of unbelief accuses Christ of being a false witness. Jesus says they are judging according to the flesh. Their, their judgment is limited. Their judgment is corrupt. And when Jesus says, I do not judge, we have to take it in, light, in that sense. He does not judge according to the flesh. His judgment is a just judgment, a right judgment. We have to remember that this statement is said in context of everything he's already said in John so far, in which he says the Son of Man has been entrusted with judgment. So Jesus is not saying, I'm never going to judge anyone. He's saying, I'm never going to judge anyone that way. Part of what he says in all of this is, you don't know me. You don't know where I came from. You don't know where I'm going. I do know where I came from. I do know where I'm going. Therefore, my testimony has far more validity than yours because it is, yours is spoken in ignorance. They think he was coming from Galilee. They probably thought he's going back to Galilee. Jesus is speaking about something far greater, that he is the eternal son who has been sent from heaven and he will return there. That's what Jesus knows and that's what they expressly do not know and do not believe. And so it blinds them to the truth of who Jesus is and therefore the truth of his testimony. Secondly, or wherever, he notes... And this, this is a phrase that can trip us up. Uh, in the ESV, your law, and, and law is, the L is capitalized, and that seems to indicate that it's speaking about the Old Testament, it's speaking about the Torah, and that's probably not what Jesus is talking about. Because when we go and we look at the Old Testament, we see that the testimony of two or three witnesses was necessary, not just in general, but in capital cases, okay? like we saw with the woman caught in adultery. Now, the Mishnah, that expanded 
that criteria of two or three witnesses beyond capital cases to all kinds of testimony. And so when Jesus says, your law, he really most likely is referring to the Mishnah, not the Torah. That's an important distinction for us to remember. The Torah was given by God. It's God's law. The Mishnah is men's thinking about that. It's not God's. It's man's. Okay? It's like saying that Calvin is my authority. Not going to do that. The scripture is my authority. But they were pointing to their version of tradition in this. And so, since this is not a capital case necessarily at this point, because they haven't charged him with blasphemy at this point, uh, earlier they did, of course, that would not count or not be necessary. He declares this, these frightening, should be frightening words to them, but they're, they miss the point, obviously. You know neither me nor my father. Now, he's not talking about Joseph. But that's who they think he's talking about. Because they go, where's your father? He's speaking about the fact that he is the one who, from the beginning, was with God. That he is the one who is God himself. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These men are religious, and they're wrong. We need to be careful sometimes. We can be religious and wrong too. But the reality here is that because they do not have Christ, because they are not following the light of the world, they have no light, they are walking in darkness, therefore they have no life, they have no salvation, and therefore they do not have God as their Father, however much they might protest otherwise. And that gets to the, the quote by Sproul that I read before our worship service. There are many people who think God is their Father, but they reject Jesus Christ. It's a package deal. It's not like you get to pick and choose which one of them you want to worship and acknowledge. To acknowledge the Son is to embrace the Father. To reject the Son is to reject the Father. They come together. They all hang together, so to speak. And so their statements, their, their beliefs are not merely, uh, you know, they're not really wrong about a statement of fact. They're guilty. They're condemned. They need to repent. Hard stuff. But they're rejecting the testimony of the light and refusing to live in its presence. Well, Bill, as you might know, survived his overnight hike in the Grand Canyon. Our pilgrimage to the New Jerusalem can be seen as far more daunting at times than going through the Grand Canyon at night. We often forget that we are not alone but that Christ is with us. The Christ who is with us provides us with heavenly bread, with a fountain of water, and with light to guide us through this dark world until we arrive at the destination he has called us to. Let us not fear, but let us love him, all the more for the fullness of provision that is found 
in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Father, in some senses, I feel like I haven't shed a whole lot of light on the subject. So much is still a jumble in my head. But I pray for the work of your Spirit to help your people understand, to help your people grasp, to believe, to follow, to rejoice in all that you have provided for us in your Son. And this morning to rejoice in the fact that we who have the living word live in light. And we don't have to stumble as though we don't. Help us to really understand what this means and how it changes everything for us how it changes how we look at each day as people who not only are dependent upon Christ, but who are provided for by Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.